Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Alan Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another Britfoot.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Don Lenoir. Hello, Don. How are you? Hello, I'm very good. Nice to be on the show. Indeed, indeed. It's been a, it's been a few Facebook messages in the making, but we're here. Um, you'll, you'll never beat the Mowax, Man from Mowax podcast, which started as an invite on the podcast at a screen daily party in Cannes in 2013, and we finally consummated the podcast 10 days ago. Very nice. So that was, uh, that, that's, that, that's, that, I think that'll go down the history as the longest lead time for any podcast they ever do. Um, but we, we certainly had a few weeks in the making to get here. So welcome. Right then, what's the name of the film that we're going to be talking about, please? So the film is Winter Ridge. Do you want to give us a brief synopsis about it? So Winter Ridge is a psychological thriller exploring degenerative diseases. Uh, and it's basically a detective thriller in a remote town, uh, which is actually set in, in Expo National Park. And Detective Barnes, who's played by Matt Hookins, mm-hmm. uh, um, is investigating these murders that are taking place. Uh, and at the same time, his wife is in a coma. So he's going through this kind of journey of grief. So it's uh, it's like a twin uh, it's a twin themed uh, piece and it's like a psychological thriller and a bit of a drama at the same time. Okay, now we're fast approaching the uh, release date. Do you want to do you want to tell us where it's going to be and how people can watch it? So uh, we've managed to to get it into the cinemas, which is um, absolutely amazing. Uh, it should be going out to twenty five screens. Mm-hmm. We are starting in Barnstable on the fifth of September, mm-hmm. uh, so that's not long now at all. And then we're moving up to Somerset, uh, 7th in Yeovil, Westlands. And then we're having a bit of a London run as well, which is really exciting. Um, the 9th of September is in Kino, Bermondsey. 14th of September is Wimbledon, um, Odeon. And the 16th, we're at Genesis Cinema in Myland. And all of those have got sort of Q&As with uh, some of our cast, such as Hannah Waddingham from Game of Thrones, Michael McKell from Allied, Matt Hookings, of course, and myself, and we might even get Alan Ford down, uh, as everyone loves Bricktop. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes so people can um, can find find a date nearest to them. And will it be available through DVD and VOD and that? Is that is that a plan for the film after the, after your, your cinema run? It is, yes. Um, so we've we've signed up with the movie partnership. Um, so we're kind of looking at a VOD release date in mid November uh, in the UK. That should be going out on quite a few different platforms, hopefully Netflix and Sky, um, mm-hmm. definitely on Amazon and uh, some of the other sort of main platforms. 
And at the same time, we're also going out with Gravitas Ventures, if you're in the USA, and that, that's kind of going out through its own uh, VOD channels in September, so late September. Brilliant. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. Now, before we go into detail about the film, I want you to cast your mind back to your own life mm -hmm. and to think about an early or fond film memory that put you on the path to where you are now. Um, wow, that's a big question. Fond film memory. The, 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 I think the thing that uh, got me into directing is probably Clint Eastwood's uh, Mystic River. That was okay. the moment I, I watched the film and I, I kind of, I kind of thought, okay, this is what a director does. This is kind of the kind of film I want to tell. Uh, you know, like a, sort of a powerful drama with a, uh, you know, a good, good acting, interesting mood sort of taking you away to a, a good landscape. I think before that, it was always like Star Wars and, and Indiana Jones that were my sort of childhood um, inspirations. Like, I just watched them infinitely yeah. over and over and over again. Uh, just, I love those kind of big, big adventures, really. Okay, okay, so cool, cool. cool. No, I, I, it's, it's, uh, it's something I've been doing over Fright Fest, and I thought I'd introduce it to uh, to my main podcast now. Um mm. With, with Fright Fest, I was asking about horror films, but I thought actually it kind of works as a as a starting point for because um, because we're going to talk about your film, which is obviously talking about you in the abstract doing a doing a project. But I think I think just 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 briefly touching on something personal gives people an idea as to where you're coming from in terms of the rest of what you say, as it were. So well, hopefully, well speaking, hopefully that works. speaking of horror, like I think one of the first things that I watched is uh, Watership Down. That's like one of my sort of founding founding memories, and uh, at, at the time I think I was quite young. And it was quite a terrifying experience, but at the same time, I think a lot of those uh, story themes in that were quite profound in what they sort of uh, imparted into me. So, uh, well, wasn't it this year? Yeah. Channel Five showed it at Easter, and um, I think it was <laughs> Channel Five, and it, it garnered the most complaints for a daytime screening of anything. Well, it's terrifying, isn't it? In a, in a, in a few, in a, in a certain instance, you've got these demonic. Bunny rabbits, <laughs> and you've got uh, you know lots of lots of sort of slaughter and, and uh, things going on. So it's definitely not a family um, a family event, but you know it has got an important message, and uh, I think it's a great sort of film. So no, no, totally agree, totally agree. Now then, let's get on to uh, Winter Ridge. Um, now it was written by Ross Owen Williams. So from you, from you, from him writing it and you directing it. At what point do you join proceedings, and what involvement did you have in the screenplay? Well, for this one, this was a film that Ross had written himself, mm -hmm. um, and it was originally set in Canada, actually, because he spent some time out there, okay. uh, so North America, Canada. And it was, it was actually originally supposed to be uh, sort of a second film that we did. Uh, we were supposed to be doing one in the UK first, mm -hmm. so it's a bit of art house. But in the end... Um, we were just looking for a film that was actually commercial, that was interesting, that was sort of doable on on a budget. And I took this script to Matt, who's the you know Matt Hookins, the main other producer on this. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how the whole project began because he saw some he saw something in it that he he liked. There was a kind of a commercial element as well as the kind of dramatic themes. And so basically, once I'd done that, we we came up with the idea to shoot the Winter Ridge in the UK. So we decided to adapt it. We worked with Ross uh, on some drafts of the script, and then mm -hmm. we developed it in-house ourselves uh, when we sort of went into production. 
for me, like it's very important to develop um, scripts as a director mm-hmm. uh, and also in, in some respects as a producer because I think you've got to have something that you can personalize and latch on to yourself and you could sort of build in those moments of direction almost into the scripts as well. Of course. Because if you, if you just try and, if you just try and sort of take someone else's work and, and, and everything they've imparted into the script themselves without putting it in yourself, there's only so much you can do in the directing um, to, to put your own spin on things. So in that sense, what, what was, um, where, where did you find you had most, most impact on what the source material you started with and what you ended up with? As the lock, as the lock script, I think I think the kind of the B story uh, of the script, which is with one of the the other characters. Um, actually, I can't go too much into it because of spoilers. But okay, yeah, there's, okay. Um, there's there's a story with a, a guy that's um, effectively is responsible for Matt's wife being in a coma in mm-hmm. the film, and uh, it, it's quite a strong kind of drama element that that I I wanted to inject into that such as him having his own struggle with uh, his daughter needing like a heart transplant. Mm. So it was kind of, it was kind of making in a story of drama and sacrifice and, and uh, you know, antagonist, I guess, having a, um, having his own kind of issues because I, I think that kind of gives it more of a layered, um, a layered feel to the audience. And they, they, it's not just a black and white villain. Uh, and I think that that was kind of what was my biggest uh, impression into the script. And, and given it was originally written for Canada, what were the what were the challenges bringing it to a UK setting? Uh, I think I think the challenges for me was was keeping it as a kind of a cinematic detective thriller that that I I was kind of able to make in the way that I wanted to. Um, mm-hmm. my, my kind of inspirations are like Prisoners, Insomnia, uh, Wind River. Those kind of uh, you know I'm, I sort of grew up on Hollywood, so that's the kind of thriller that I enjoy watching and it's also the kind of thing that I enjoy making so it was it was difficult to convince some certain people in even in the script stage that the kind of film that I wanted to make I you know I've kept the guns in in the film in in a couple of scenes I've kept the detective in more the kind of American style of of a guy who's slightly off the rails um I've made it into more of a mood piece Mm. and so that there was there there is resistance I think especially in the UK when you sort of do procedural stuff uh, with cops there, there's a kind of a there's an there's an emphasis on on realism or a kind of a feeling that you should be doing that but I kind of drew more on you know, Luther and and that Haydn cinematic style so that was a kind of challenge I guess was keeping the bits that I wanted to and, and convincing everyone to sort of you know allow it as a, as a production. How how do you balance the two hats of producer and director? Because obviously a producer doesn't want you to spend all the money and a director wants to do the most spectacular thing they can do in terms of bang for the book. Um, you know, living in a world where there's finite resources and finite people. So what what was what, what's your what's your challenge there, getting that balance right for yourself? So for me, producing is a means to direct. Okay. So I, I I started producing simply as a way to make the films at the level that I wanted to, mm-hmm. because um, I, I find there's a lot of resistance in terms of what people kind of think you can achieve on on a certain budget. Uh, there's a lot of limitations in place that I, I find very frustrating. So, I mean, an example is for this one, uh, location-wise, um, there was a there was quite an easy location to shoot in Wales, 
mm-hmm. that was good uh, and it even would have come with some some further investment but it wasn't kind of exactly what I wanted it, it didn't sort of stand out to me as you know, drastically unique and, and sort of uh, capturing exactly what I wanted in the vision of the film and the story mm. so I went down to X4 kind of on a, on a whim. I took one of the producers, Chris, um, and we went on a location scout and kind of just had a feeling that it was the right kind of landscape and in the middle of nowhere, as far away as you can possibly get from the uh, from, from sort of civilization, we found this uh, town called Linton Limbeth. Mm. And it just had these like big black sort of hills and rocks. There was this cascading river that went through the middle of it. There was the, a location nearby called Valley of the Rocks, which is just a sort of staggering landscape. And it's kind of the thing you'd expect in Scandinavia or um, in North America. And it had a completely different feel to, to England. So as a director, I wanted to shoot there. I was, I, was, I was adamant I had to shoot there. Then as a producer, I had to try and convince the other producers and the investors that it was a worthwhile location. Um, uh, it, was, it was a worthwhile sort of um, yeah location to shoot in. Mm-hmm. So my job then was to I, I rang up the mayor of the town and I said to them, look, this is a very difficult place to get to. It's going to cost quite a lot with the accommodation. Basically, if you know, I want to bring tourism to your town, I want to make this a big thing around the area. I think it's a spectacular town, but you need to help me make this a reality. So then on the logistics side, I kind of convinced them to do us a lot of deals with locations uh, got the local sort of mayor, the, the town behind it, a woman called Diane Mitchell who helped us with um, you know loads of things on, on. She was like a producer almost on on mm. the on the town, and and so I, I used that as a as a sort of a bargaining tool. So then when I went back to the production, I could say, okay, look, I've made this feasible. It's it's not only is it better visually and creatively, but it, it works on this level. So that's kind of how I I always just find thing, find ways around with the producing to so that. I never have to compromise uh, on the directing and the creative. No, yeah, it sounds like it sounds like power to the people, really. It's, you know, instead of the um, I, I asked permission for this, you 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 sought to get an advantage from what you thought you could do with the, exactly with holding the two positions. That was interesting, though. So, so when you when you take this, when you were going to shoot this with this fantastic location that you've now that you've now found and now agreed and made and made feasible. Um, mm-hmm. What was your conversation with your cinematographer like? Um, how, what were you, you've mentioned a couple of film references already in terms of your directorial style, but obviously they work with a cinematographer. Um, yeah. I'm thinking of with, with, you know, someone like, something like Prisoners, I think it was Roger Deakins, wasn't it? Um, it was, yeah. Uh, with Villeneuve, which I think he did on Sicario as well. So, um, what what was, what was your, because if, if, if you're immediately struck by a place and you think, yes, this is, you know, Scandinavia just down the road uh, what are you saying to your cinematographer you want to happen so the, the conversation uh, Jao De Silva is our cinematographer mm-hmm. and he's had a lot of uh, good praise for the cinematography actually in the film uh, he came in quite late so he only had a chance to sort of come down for a very very brief I think it was like one and a half day recce which isn't which isn't is not ideal for a feature film yeah um, and we were still sort of locking in location but he was very taken aback by the landscape. Um, the conversation that myself and him had uh, was basically, again, kind of in terms of how to make this look like a kind of a more American style um, aesthetic. And the references for the external stuff were, was kind of prisoners, the kind of moving in uh, ominous kind of camera work that, that Deakins does. 
we also there's a lot of conversations between me and Zhao about um, distorted surfaces to kind of mirror the the vision of the Alzheimer's patients. So that was kind of thrown in as well, um, as in like shooting through sort of opaque glass and, and um, various various sort of elements like that to sort mm. of mirror, mirror what's going on in the characters. So that was kind of uh, in in that aesthetic. And then in terms of the tone and the lighting, we kept this kind of bleak you know, really showing off the the extent of the the landscape and the remoteness, uh, which kind of drawing on uh, insomnia, I guess. And the internals, we took a very different approach, and it was very much influenced from The Night of, which is an HBO show. Okay, uh, another one. It uses a uses a lot of backlight silhouettes. It's very kind of monochromatic. Um, it's very kind of film noir, actually, mm-hmm. and I think that just gives it like a really different element um, visually and and kind of in terms of the tone and the atmosphere and it it does create slightly more of an ominous feel to the the whole thing Mm. Uh, and it's it it definitely is very distinctive and we use some very old interesting buildings like the town hall as a as a kind of a police station which um, is very dramatic on set and I think it has its own uh, its own feel so when so when you were shooting um, what what do you fit what do you feel like from a personal point of view was the sort of achievement of what you were managing to lift off the page onto screen in terms of what you were able to get in the film? What was the achievement? Uh, for you, for you. What, not, 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 obviously, the film's an achievement, that, that goes without saying, but in terms of when you, when you were pulling apart the script and looking at what you had to, what you had to shoot to make the movie, yeah. there, there obviously are easier bits and harder bits. So of the, of the harder, more challenging elements of the screenplay, which ones were you kind of most proudest about what you managed to resolve within, you know, again, thinking about within the, within the constraints of a, of a finite budget and finite resources? So, I mean, I think, I think in general, trying to shoot a feature film in 17 days is relatively impossible. Um, so that was... That was yeah, congratulations <laughs> the on that go, front then. The word go. Yeah, it was going to be like a, it was going to be a challenge. Um, the first week especially was probably the, the thing that I think most people are... are are sort of proud of and, and myself as well mm. because we had we, I mean all the way through the shoot we had pretty much eight pages a day it was, it was sort of Blimey. six to eight pages a day uh, and this was sort of down to down to cast as well cast availability mm-hmm. but we had to go in kind of um, beginning with fire almost and shoot the the sort of the really climactic end scene uh, on day two yeah and bear in mind we're in the middle of nowhere we've still going to kind of get all the HOD set up. We don't have much pre-production time because of the budget. So everyone's kind of coming in, uh, you know, at most a couple of days before most people sort of the, the night before. And we had this massive sort of end scene at, at the, uh, the cliffs with, with stunts, the whole geography of the, the actual location had to be tricked. So that the cliff edges appeared to be in a certain way. Uh, so we had all these different things to do, like that, that would normally take days in themselves. Yeah. And we were still having to do that, these heightened drama scenes, eight pages, stunts, etc., um, for, you know, day two and three, which was, you know, we only had two days to finish, like, the last sort of 15 minutes of the film. So um, that in itself was, was probably the biggest achievement um, just because of the, the, the sheer scale of it. And then we had to go and do Alan Ford scenes where we had just a, a huge number of setups in all different areas of this, this one location, uh, outside, inside, changing light. Um, and we only had like a, a day and a half to sort of do his bits. So that was another really, really good achievement that I'm very proud of with, um, with Alan Ford. Um, 
And probably probably the, the biggest achievement, like one of my favorite scenes in the whole film, is uh, a scene with Ian Perry, um, who's who's a, a really sort of capable emotional actor. Yeah. And it's kind of a yeah, it, it's basically set in this this warehouse. And Nina Top, our production designer, I I kind of just I. I I said, go to town on this, this warehouse. I want to see like an absolute kind of labyrinth, um, for, for the characters to kind of hunt this character down, uh, for Detective Barnes and, and Detective Harris, mm. played by Justin. And, uh, she just, uh, she just made this incredible, like thousands of boxes, the, all these different walkways, uh, Jowl lit it up like it was Blade Runner. Um, <laughs> and we literally, you know, in the schedule, everyone said it was impossible because we had about half a day to do all these stunts and this kind of, big sort of cinematic chase scene with guns um, and all these sort of fights to choreograph. And somehow we ended up sort of doing it in half a day um, along with one of the, the sort of the biggest um, drama scenes with Dale Jacobs and, and Matt um, uh, in, a, in a car, which was, which was in a sort of a 40 minute driveway. So that, that day in itself was a, a bit of a miracle um, and two of the best scenes in the film. I'm exhausted just listening to the tale. I can't imagine what the 17 days <laughs> must have felt like. My word. Um, now, one last one last thing about about the making of it. Obviously, if 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 Matt Hawkins is playing your sort of lead role, the, yep. the detective, and he's also your co-producer, and you've got obviously got a, 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 a number of other producers involved. How again, thinking of thinking about how relationships on set work, you know, obviously films weirdly like like the armed forces are a bit hierarchical, aren't they? You know, yeah. all, all all eyes look at the director when they don't know what to do. Um, yeah. But also, all eyes, all eyes are hoping the director's going to be sort of orchestrating how, how it goes, with, with obviously help from every, all the heads of department and everything else that's been planned. But yeah. if you two are both producers, and he's the lead and you're directing, did, did you, was it a case of having to have a conversation beforehand about how you might want to do it or how he might want to be directed, and or did it just happen as part of your ongoing working relationship? So I think it was very organic in terms of the collaboration. Um, I started off the project with, with Matt, so he was kind of uh, on board with just the, the way that it was put together. And okay. you know, we did a lot of that from, from the word go in, in the sort of the producing terms. That yeah. we, then, we then got Nancy and Chris, um, the other producers, sort of uh, on board to, to go into in sort of production. Mm-hmm. And they kind of managed, I think, some of the more logistical stuff um, when we were on sets. So we, we lost the location uh, and they kind of shielded us from that, which is which is really good. Yeah. But um, eyes were still on us as producers, definitely, uh, even even on set. So, I mean, I think we didn't really have much prep time. Um, it was a case of sort of sneaking in in advance, uh, like I would do read throughs with him. We'd go through the character. Um, he would go through the detective procedural side as his own research. I would go through. Um, the kind of the motions of grief that was kind of what I wanted to inject into his character. Hmm. So, so we did a lot of that, and then on on set it was a case of obviously um, it was just everything was kind of uh, we had we had to improvise quite a lot. So I would um, I would just do a read through with all of the actors. Um, myself and Matt kind of already knew his character very well um, in in advance, even though we, we had quite a short time just because of the, the length that we'd been spending together and sort of going through the pre-production. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, if, if anything went wrong, I mean, there, <laughs> there was a moment when there was a kind of a, a, a jib hanging over his head and, uh, you know, the crew were, were sort of like, well, we need to sign off on it if this is, if this is okay for, 
health and safety reasons, we need a producer here. And we're just like, well, we're producers, so we'll, we'll, start, <laughs> we'll, we'll sign it off. It's, it's his head and it's my metaphorical head if it goes wrong. Um, okay, so, so, so what you're saying is there's like a, there was an advantage of like fleets of foot as much as anything else. Yeah, I mean, we, we didn't we didn't announce that we were producers on set, but we were kind of yeah, very much still having to jump in and out of those um, those roles, I guess. Can, so can, it, it was a bit of a challenge, but I think uh, we we really at the end of the day, it's just catering to the story and just using sort of experience of uh, how to get the shoot done and and just from just from past filming really, and, and I think it just kind of worked very well. And, and Matt did deliver a very good performance, and he's, um, he's he's had a lot of good reception in terms of that mm. uh, from from all the all the festivals that we've had. And yeah. Can, can, I mean, you've mentioned me through a couple of times now. Can you, for the for the for the layperson listening in, what, what do you feel are the benefits to you as the director of a read through? Um, so the, the read through, I mean, we did we did one read through in pre production, which mm. is just it's just good to get all the the actors um, accustomed to the script, hear it out loud. You can kind of start to picture the film a bit in, yeah. in a in a sort of a loose sense when you do that. But what we did on set is we would pretty much, because of the time, we didn't have much time to, to location recce or we didn't have any rehearsal time for the other actors. So it would be a case of we'd, we'd meet in the morning, we'd, we'd all run through the script. We'd do a couple of improvs um, here and there on the, on the blocking and the, um, on the, and the dialogue sort of dependent on uh, what, what made the actors comfortable. That was always my, um, my emphasis because... Yeah. When you don't have time to to give the the actors the sort of the motivations for okay, I want you to do this for this reason, um, it's it's much better, it's much easier just to go with what's what's what makes them comfortable rather than sort of trying to get them force them into something. Um, so that was always the kind of the motivation. So we'd do that. We'd spend like I don't know, often just as, as short as fifteen minutes doing read-throughs, maybe half an hour while while the crew were getting set up. Then we'd relight and then uh, do a bit more read-throughs while the the lighting was being set up, um, and that was kind of our our period, I guess, to just really see things out. And um, we 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 improvised quite on the fly, I think, in, in a lot of cases in terms of of the acting. And one day we kind of came in and we decided that we'd shoot in another location because it was starting to feel a bit stagnant being in one of the offices. Um, which we hadn't realised at the script stage, but you you do realise that in the rehearsal. That's interesting. So you so something you couldn't see on the page, it immediately became evident while while making the movie that this wasn't necessarily keeping it interesting, to, to, visually speaking. Ex- exactly. Yes. Yes. So I mean, I mean, when you're when you're looking at the script, you've got all these different scenes that are in the, the police office, and it's sort of cutting there and back, but. When you start going into the office and you you see the scenes and the, there's limited camera movements, you you definitely get get a feeling of like whether it, you know where the limit is and when you should sort of move away from this location and mm. try and get a bit more dynamic in the scenes. And we had this grand kind of staircase in in the old town hall and it just looked looked fantastic. So um, you know we just decided to light the most difficult sort of room in, in the, the whole building on the fly and, and the gaffers <laughs> and the, 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 the cinematographer were really happy about that. But when it, when it all came down to it, it looked amazing. So Now, finally then, one, 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 given, given obviously you're, you're, you're a British independent film, um, you're, not, you're not backed by any studio or distribution chain that, that gets it out there. One of, the, one of the big achievements for your film is, getting it, is actually getting it into cinemas. You know, this isn't... You know, I was, funny enough, I was watching um, a History of Fright Fest 
yeah. documentary last night. And there was uh, Alan Jones, one of the directors of the festival, was saying that, you know, in the past, they'd show films and then they'd be in the cinema. And they mm. show films and then they'll be on DVD. He said, he said, they're showing films now where possibly you might never see them in the UK again. Because, mm. you know, the world, the world is, um, the world is so, so, so oversupplied, I suppose, with, with either archived or, or new content. So, so to get it in the cinema like you have is a big achievement. Do you want to talk about, about what, what, what you've done there to, to, to make that happen? So, Basically, we just uh, we, we we always wanted to get like some kind of limited cinema, even if it was a couple of screens. Yeah. And I think again, this is one of those things where sometimes the British film industry can be a little bit negative um, in terms of what what what's, uh, the conventions are of what genres and, and you know where you can go with something. But it really is as simple as bringing up a couple of cinemas, telling them you're going to pack out those cinemas. You've got to be persuasive with, you know, what press you've got behind you, why the, why the film's going to do well. We had 12 um, awards behind us, so that, that always helps as well. Um, mm. And uh, it's just, it really is just a case of being being really driven and just saying, no, we're going to get this into the cinemas um, and finding a way and just ringing up the cinemas and just sort of, um, obviously all the cinemas try and get you to do a sort of a, a hiring book out fee. Mm. Uh, but you just got to go around that and say, no, we want to split on the profits. We've got all the materials we need, make it sound easy for them. Um, and we just sort of started from there. We built up a few. We, we began with sort of Scott cinemas uh, that came through a connection through Matt. And then literally it's just been myself and Matt in an office uh, in, in London Bridge um, with some amazing helpers, just some of them people who aren't even involved in the film, just coming into the office. We've had like two or three people at a time. And just ringing up constantly um, to get the cinemas booked, uh, to get press, just to get this whole run sort of off the ground because it's uh, it's usually something that you'd have in a sort of a twenty-man team or that the distributor would be sort of throwing loads of money at. But you know, you hear these stories: oh, you need to be a, a horror film or a, a gangster, or you have to have an A-list cast, and it's just not true. You just need to have. You don't need twenty grand. You don't need fifty grand to get in the cinemas. You just need to get a couple of DCPs, the, the, the digital print, mm. and be driven enough to, to make it happen. And I think this is a, a real sort of success story. We're actually going to go after 100. Uh, that's our kind of big goal. Uh, yeah. After 25, we're just going to keep the cinema cinema run going into into October. So that's that's the plan. We want to make a, a really big thing about this because... Well, no, good luck. Yeah. I mean, I had Deborah Haywood on, uh, who did Pincushion. I don't know if you know that film. I've heard of it, yeah. Well, that's just enjoyed six weeks at the Odeon in the town where she's from. You know, so well, get, yeah. you know that's not what you know that's not the type of film that the Odeon's going to usually program, and it didn't necessarily impact the whole of the Odeon chain. But it shows you that individual cinemas, even in the big national chains, have a flexibility, don't they, to to accommodate films because ultimately they only want to put bums on seats and sell sweets. Exactly, yeah, they they do, and I think. Um... You know, people people say that cinema is dying and it's not it's not massively profitable, uh, and that the VOD is the the route. But actually, uh, as producers putting on a cinema run, I, I think it's really good, and I think some films are just designed to be seen in the cinema. Um, and I think you just got to go for it. I think more people should go for it with their independent films. You know, you don't have to do twenty five. You could do you know two or three cinemas in your in your local area. 
uh, and just make sure you sort of pack it out with your your friends and family. But I think a lot more people should go for that that route. It doesn't cost the world to get a, a digital cinema print done, mm. um, and it, it makes a big difference. Uh, I mean, our, our our film we had like a sound designers were um, Glenn Fremantle and, and Danny Fremantle from Sound Twenty Four, and they've won Oscars. And the sound design on this is absolutely incredible. So. It, it would be a complete shame to just have it on a sort of a, a home experience for VOD when it's built, literally built for the cinema and those big sort of uh, grand soundscapes. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a message that I certainly this year the the idea of a experience as opposed to just being entertained is what the cinema is for me now. I've, I've kind of it's it's been through where films have done that, you know, where films have gone that that have, have decided to give the film that element that, that in the cinema is is the added value. So I think, I mean, I remember um, watching Hereditary this year. Yeah. And I honestly thought someone had, had, had snuck in the cinema and was chatting away. And it was, in fact, the <laughs> sound design of the film. Brilliant. You know, where I'm looking around for who's, who's, who's causing the disturbance, and I realise it's what I'm watching. And I'm like, wow, that is amazing that a film can disorientate me that much. And then at the other extreme, I was fortunate enough to see um, Gaspar Noé's Climax at the, the closed Fright Fest. And that's got, you know, classic disco, Daft Punk, and it thunders at you. Now, while you can, you, you can hear those songs through your TV fine, but it won't feel the same as, like, the room shaking, like you can in a cinema. Yeah, no, no exactly. And I think, um, I mean, for me, I think films are a really good um, catharsis, sort of, as an experience. And... Mm. There's there's obviously like there's there's a big benefit to both like there's there's a lot of films where you you you'll you'll be watching it at home, um you know with someone or your family and sometimes you have like a nice quiet sort of Sunday evening film like Sideways that's a, you know a great sort of uh, easy watch yeah and um, but then other times like you know you go to the cinema and and you you watch something like um I don't know like in Interstellar where it's just this grand cinematic experience and everyone in the audience is is just buzzing from that. And, uh, you know, I think that's just that's what it's all about when you get that energy and that electric um, reaction from everyone. And I think they, they all they all impart something from the film. Uh, and you, sometimes you just can't do that at home. You need indeed, to get... indeed. Well, look, let's remind people then. So from September the 5th, it's going yep. to, Winter Ridge is going to be in cinemas. We'll put a, yep. we'll put a link in with uh, listings to your, your scheduled screenings. I'm guessing, are you going to be at most of them or some of you? Or are you, are you, are you picking, is, is there certain ones that are shown to be Q&As and stuff? I think I'm going to be at pretty much all of them, um, which means, yeah, lots of, lots of travelling down to Devon and Brighton and Portsmouth and London. But, um, yeah, it should be good. I, I will be at most of them. Um, and we'll just be sort of alternating different casts and Matt should be at quite a lot of them as well. Brilliant. So, you're, so it's so it's an experience and an event as well as a film. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, we try and make all the the the, the cinema sort of runs personalised and trying to you know encourage industry people to come down as well. Excellent. Well, look, thanks very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Thank you very much for having me. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv.
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.